Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for following Jesus. If we haven't met yet, my name is Tony, and I'm your host. With over a decade in the local church, I care deeply and passionately about helping you connect with Jesus in intentional ways. Every single week through these interview episodes and monologue episodes, I'm just trying to put content out in the world to help you move a little bit closer to Jesus. Today's conversation was a fun one. Pat Bradley, born for rescue. Pat Bradley kind of started uh, a nonprofit all about how to help and rescue people. It's incredible. His latest resource, Born for Rescue, tells some riveting stories about um, Crisis Aid International. Crisis Aid International is one of the first organizations to show up where people aren't allowed to be, where starvation, disease, and danger are part of everyday life. And more than that, you're just going to love Pat's heart. He loves the Lord. He loves the mission that God has him in. And I'm so excited for this conversation. If you enjoy it, do me a favor, follow him on socials and uh, let him know you heard him here on the Reclamation Podcast. Also, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. Leave a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify. And obviously, the highest compliment you can give us, share this episode with a friend. Maybe somebody who you know loves to do good in the world. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Pat Bradley. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm excited today to have author, um, CEO, and nonprofit leader, Pat Bradley. Pat, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, thank you, Tony. It's an honor to be here. Well, I, I love the mission that God has put in your life. And I know that you've kind of uh, been in this world for about 20 years and you've obviously done some other things. You've, you've led uh, kind of a diverse life. I'm, I'm curious, you know, to kind of kick us off, how would you describe the calling that God has placed on your life? Simple. His calling on my life which is the same calling that most of us have as believers, is simply to demonstrate the love of God to people. Mm. And the second part of that, uh, I mean, that's a great question. I don't, I don't think I've ever been asked that question. So the second part of that would be in Matthew 25, 33 to 40, where Jesus basically summarizes and says, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. Mm. And so I find that um, that verse is probably has more freedom in it for me than almost anything in the Bible because um, for years I wondered how, how can I serve God and what's the will of God for my life and how do I know I'm going to hear from God? And Jesus just said, hey, man, whatever you do, whatever, whatever you do, those two key words, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. And so it was like, okay, well, what's on my heart to do? Hmm. Let me follow, let me just follow my heart. And I realized as I start following my heart, I was in the center of God's will for my life, and it was all it was always there. I didn't need this audible word, or I didn't need to be led from God because when I gave my life to Christ, before I even did that, before I was even born, He had me wired and, and to do what I do today. And it was just a matter of the freedom of seeing when Jesus said, "Hey, man, whatever you do." You know, clothe the naked, go to prison, feed the poor, help the widows, all of those things. Whatever you do for me, you're doing it for them. Or for them, you're doing it for me. 
So I just find so much freedom in that. Yeah, I, I love that. Um, I've had the opportunity to check out this latest resource, Born for Rescue. And one of the things that I noticed is that you're really vulnerable about some of your past. Um, yeah. And you, you haven't always uh, probably lived with so much intimacy with the Lord, right? You, you know, I, I'm curious, oh, yeah. how, what, what was that moment in your life that shifted and all of a sudden you realized, I need to get right with Jesus or else this is going to go downhill real fast? Uh, well, the, the, the full story is in the book, but the short version of it is the, I was, my wife and I were divorced and uh, I went to the church that she was taking our children to because I wanted to see, because I thought it was a cult. And while we were sitting in church, they had worship. And I mean, this was a mega church. It was like 4,000 people there. And I'd never been in anything like this. Mm. So I was kind of freaked out anyway. And after worship was, uh, I mean, people like standing up, singing and clapping and raising their hands. And I'd never seen nothing like this. So I was like, whoa, this is a cult. And we sat down and... Um, I got real quiet, and then this guy stands up and he starts speaking. And what I knew for whatever reason, I knew it was tongues. Oh wow! Yeah, and um, now I'm really my mind's really going tilt. You know, something's really crazy about this. And the pastor said, "Now," and he explained what that was. And he said, "Now I have the interpretation." And he went through it biblically, like you're supposed to have an interpretation for when somebody stands up like that in a church service. And so he said. That what God is speaking to him was, and this is what I heard was, like, God was saying, speaking to me, how many times must I call you? Mm. Now, what I got to, I got to tell you this. As soon as the pastor started to speak, this cloud, I like, this cloud came over me. And I mean, like, literally, I couldn't see. And I, I found myself, as insane as this sounds, sobbing uncontrollably. I couldn't stop sobbing. And half of my brain's going, you have lost your mind. You are insane with this. People are staring at you. You're making a scene. But I mean, literally, I couldn't see. And I heard this voice three times. How many times do I have to call you? And I knew instantaneously it was, it was Jesus. I knew it was God. And, and I gave my life to Christ. So that's how I came to the Lord. It was kind of an interesting experience to say. And then my ex-wife sitting next to me, she thought I totally went crazy. <laughs> she, <laughs> she's like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, I don't know, but I can't quit crying. <laughs> and then we got remarried six months later. <laughs> and how long have you been married since? Ooh, I don't want to tell you. To tell you, give you an idea how old I am. Um, for like 40 years. That's awesome. Been a long time. <laughs> yeah. Now, before that, um, you're also really candid in the book about wrestling with some of your own demons around drinking. Yes, that was um, definitely. You, you know, I, 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 have, I have wrestled with similar demons in my life. And, um, and I, I'm, curious, I'm curious if you could just give a word to someone who feels like they're in a cycle of being trapped by something, you know, maybe by their own life choices, if they th thought about it, but also maybe they just feel like they're in quicksand and the harder that they try to get out, the, the more and more deeper they sink. What, um, I don't know. Do you, do you have a word of encouragement for somebody who might be in that season of life? 
Yeah, I do. Um, you know, that, uh, as in the book, you know, I was an alcoholic, and um, the one thing I learned after I had sobered up and I was volunteering in treatment centers and doing a lot of AA meetings and things, that the bottom line is this. When you finally hit your bottom or when you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, you're yeah. ready to do something. And if there's people out there listening today and they can go in the closet and say to themselves out loud, I am so sick of this, change is right around the corner. Lasting permanent change is around the corner. But we really have to get ourselves to that point where I'm so sick of this, I, I have to change. And... <clears throat> You know, I hear a lot about deliverance and all, and all of that, and that's fine, and we do need to pray. But from my experience, those that reached that point were the ones that were most likely to, to move on and become successful. Yeah, one of the things that we say around here a lot is that if you're not dedicated to your disciplines, you'll be destroyed by your distractions. Yeah, yeah. Very good statement. And thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm curious, uh, what does your daily disciplines look like that have kept you, one, close to God, and two, sober, and three, seemingly joyful um, for these many years since that rock-bottom moment? Well, I think um, the number one thing I do is every morning I try to spend a good hour or, or longer just, you know, and quote, our quiet time. And, yeah. you know, I got a chair, and I got my books, and I got my Bible, and but, you know, it's in that time when I really hear hear more clearly from God than any other time. And it just sets my day up, um, and it just keeps me that um, in uh, that relationship, that personal relationship, that I can just be who I am. Because sometimes in church, um, there's so many distractions, let's just say it that way, that, that I can't find myself sitting in a church service and just being able to go, Lord, you know what? This really sucks. I am trying to deal with this. And what is happening over there? And why is this not working out? And I need to get some answers from you today or tomorrow at the latest. I can't do that in church, but I can do that in my quiet time. So that is the single most important thing to me is is to do that. And some days it's a half an hour, you know? But um, that that is, for me, it. Uh, one of the interesting things is... Um you just were like, hey, sometimes I spend an hour, sometimes I spend an hour and a half, sometimes I spend a half an hour in quiet time. Um, and also you had this miraculous kind of come to Jesus meeting. Um, I, I, how long did it take you to get to a place where you're in, in, in a good rhythm with quiet time, where you're spending some really deep time? Because I can't imagine you went straight from Sunday morning converting to church to the, you know, Monday, I'm going to spend an hour in the Bible. It, it doesn't yeah. work like that for most of us. And I yeah. think that there's probably somebody listening who's like, man, I want more time with the Lord. I'm wondering if you could give them like one or two steps that you took. Well, so when I, when I gave my life to Christ, I think I was like 30 years old. So we were raised, you know, we got remarried and we we're trying to raise kids. And so, I mean, we were busy with all of that. And so during that time, I wasn't spending that kind of hour a day. That came much later in my walk. I'd say in the last maybe 10 years of my life, you know, my kids are grown and they're out of the yeah. house and they have been. So that afforded me the luxury to be able to do that because when I had kids, I'd have to get up at three o'clock in the morning to do that. And I'm just not that saying. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, but what I think what I want to encourage people is this, is that we seem to forget a simple little fact. 
when we give our life to Christ, it's permanent. Yeah. In Jesus' eyes, it's permanent. And when you're living your life and you're raising your children and you're going to school meetings and you got to go to the grocery store, husband goes to work, wife goes to work. I mean, just when you're living your life, you're still living it in Christ because you gave that life to him in totality. And that's how he sees it. And so for the longest time, 15 years, I never grasped that. I never even thought about it that way. But I was at, at the end of the day, it's, I'm either Christ's or I'm not. Hmm. And so, sure, sure, God knows we have children array. I mean, He understands our situation, and, and I don't believe He sits there and goes, "Well, they didn't, they didn't have their one-hour quiet time this morning, so I'm not blessing them." I didn't think it doesn't work that way. We are completely enveloped by His arms of love and strength and hope to carry through every single day. And to be an outreach to other people during that day, during our time. I love that. I think that that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that's really evident as I dove into this writing a little bit is that your relationship with your wife has grown with your spiritual maturity, which is such a, a it's such a blessing. Um, I, I wanted to take a second and and read the dedication page. Uh, sure. I, I learned a long time ago. I, I stole this from a friend of mine, Ryan Hawk about reading dedication pages because it really gives you an insight to people that's off script. And so I wanted to read the, the dedication page and then give you a, a second to speak to it. it. It's right in line with what we're already talking about. It, it reads like this. This book is dedicated to you, Susan. Without your unwavering faith, this book would not exist. Your belief in the dream that God gave us has never faded. This dream has only grown over the years. Your belief in God has become the foundation on which helping millions of people rests and continue to help millions more. Thank you for taking me back, because if you did not, there would not have been no dream to believe in. I love you forever. I also dedicate this book to God. Thank you for everything you have given and done for us. So you probably haven't looked at that in a long time. Um, yeah. I'm curious, how would you describe the growth that you've seen with Susan um, since she said yes the second time? Okay. I, you know, it's funny. Our, the only argument we really have had going on 40 years of being remarried is who took each other. Like, I say, you took me back. She says, no, you took me back. So we've yet we've yet to resolve that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Um well, you know, early on, before the crisis aid days, I mean, we were living life. I was a partner in marketing organization. It was a successful company. We were doing very, very well. Um, and so we just had to, what I'm going to say, a typical life to what a lot of people have. But as time went on, um, and as the ministry work started to go and grow, you know, we were doing some crazy things like going to South Sudan, going to Afghanistan, going to North Korea. We we're going to places that were not safe. But Susan never faltered or never worried. She's like, I know that you're hearing from God. And so I know being in the center of God's will is the most safest place to be. And if that's in Afghanistan, so be it. Mm. Uh, but I think um, the, the one thing that I always wanted and that I work personally towards 
is I always wanted my wife to be my best friend because I thought it brought a uh, dimension into the relationship. I mean, husband and wife, yeah. Um, you know, she's my lover. She's everything. But I also wanted to be my best friend because, you you know, you just add, I don't know how else to say it. It adds a fullness to the relationship that we had. And so, frankly, it was a choice. I just decided, okay, she's going to be my best friend. I made that decision. Now she is. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. Um, I I would imagine, you know, I, I you kind of briefly talked about the the trips that you take, and we're gonna we're gonna jump into crisis aid a little bit more here in just a second. But um, there's there's some couples listening. I know for a fact that um, are struggling about this really big God calling that maybe one person has in their relationship and the other person's just not sure what to do, right? Like th there's a lot of, I mean, I, there has to be so much emotion that, that parallels sending your husband off to do ministry work in South Sudan or Korea or all the different places that you've been, Afghanistan. And, you know, uh, how do you guys live into that tension and, and do it well? Um, Really simply, it was we both believed what we we both believed that we were hearing from God, mm. and we, and I'm just going to stop it right there because I don't want to try to elaborate on it. We just had this confidence we were hearing from God, and we just kept taking the next step that was in front of us. And some were very illogical steps, and some were very logical steps. But it was just based on a foundation that we are hearing from God. God is guiding us in. Let's just keep moving forward. Um, and so through the 90s, I would take vacation time and do mission trips. And I wouldn't take my wife or children because we were smuggling Bibles in restricted countries. And it just wasn't a good, wasn't, I didn't feel it was safe for them. But they they always had that peace. And um, yeah, I, you know, Tony, I'm, I'm just, I think with Christians, we try to complicate our lives so much. So I really strive to be strive to be simple as I can possibly be, and you know it, it came down to this: if I've given my heart to God, and the Bible says, you know, if we ask and we believe all we're asking, He'll tell us; He'll give us the wisdom; He'll give us the guidance. And so we were asking the whole time for wisdom and guidance, and I either had to act on that or I had to not act on it, and just simply chose let's act on it and see what happens it makes sense to you yeah no perfect sense it's it's a small step of faithfulness right like yeah um in in my rec in the recovery world it's it's one day at a time like hey i'm just exactly yeah i'm just going to do whatever the lord wants me to do today and then see what mm -hmm. happens tomorrow right like mm -hmm. um i i think that 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 makes a lot of sense were there any trips that you ever went on that you and susan didn't have uh, agreement on there was one time so I work with a, a friend of mine in South, he was from South Africa, um, from St. Louis, Missouri. So we would meet like in Nairobi and we'd fly up to Kenya and do our, do our work for a week or so, a week or two. And Sue was always positive and, and, you know, she dropped me off at the airport. But this one time she got out of the car and she started sobbing and mm. she couldn't stop sobbing. And I was like, okay, now you gotta, <laughs> I'm like, you're making this scene. Stop this. <laughs> People are <laughs> People are stopping to look. What they're going to think I'm abusing you or something? But um, 
it, it was weird. You know, and it was, it was a trip. We were going to South Sudan, and then from there we were going to Afghanistan, and I was coming home. Never experienced it. I almost didn't get on that plane. Wow. Because I'm like, Lord, what are you speaking to her, to me? What's going on? I don't understand this. But ultimately, I got on a plane. I ended up in, you know, in Nairobi and met my partner. And I said, hey, I got to tell you what happened to me today. And this has never happened. And it's never happened since either. It was just that one time. And I explained to him. And he looked at me. And he was like shocked because the identical same thing happened to him and his wife when, they, when she took him to the airport. So we're like... Should we just hang out in Nairobi for two weeks and not tell anybody? Because <laughs> it was it was weird. It was really weird. But that was the only time. Was and there anything that, that we? Uh, who knows what was prevented that we weren't aware of? But we we never had any problem. <laughs> um. Now, what, one of the things that I noticed as I was doing a little research on crisis aid is that uh, that kind of the the words on the website the rally cry is, is break the cycle, change the tide, mm-hmm. right? Break the cycle, change the tide. I'm wondering if you could give us like a 30,000 view overview of what this ministry is, because it, um, you, you, you're very clear in the book that you're not superhuman, but this feels like a superhuman, uh, kind of mission that you're on. And I'm wondering if you could kind of, uh, give us some perspective on it. Sure. I think, well, um, so what we're doing is, is, uh, First of all, we work in areas where no other organizations are working. So right now in East Africa, uh, we're working in places where there's children are literally starving to death today in today's world. Kids are dying because they don't have enough food. Um, rampant human trafficking, orphanage, just, just horrible problems. So we go into these areas and we set up programs um, to a, for our first goal is to save lives. And so anything that needs to be done to save lives and keep people alive. But since oh, maybe four years ago now, we're shifting to build more of a sustainability in, into our programs to where we go in and we look at, for instance, in this one area, for 10 years we were doing feeding programs and we were struggling to keep people alive, literally. And uh, at the death of a four-year-old, something just kind of set off in my mind, we got to ask better questions. We're not asking the right questions mm. of ourselves. And so what we started to notice was this girl's father had no opportunities. And so in a, like, as an American, we can't understand that. It, we really can't. We all hold this belief that anybody can lift themselves up. And, and it's true. Everybody can. But there are places in the world where people don't have an opportunity. These, these people in this region, and there's like maybe 10 million people in this region, for the most part, many of them have go back generations living with their family not having an opportunity so they're thinking they don't they wouldn't recognize it if they saw it so they keep doing the same thing over and over trying to be maybe like sustenance farmers or hiring themselves out as a day laborer where they make make 50 cents in a day if they're lucky on a good day and they're trying to support a wife and you know three or four kids it's just and it wasn't working it doesn't work so what we decided to do was to start building in an economic engine into our programs so where we can hire hire local workers, create jobs, uh, but set our programs up as demonstrations. So for instance, in this one area, we set up a dairy and it started out with 20 cows. Now we got 50 some odd cows. Uh, we're building our second dairy, our second barn to expand it. We sell all the milk every day in town 
and the profits of that go back into our, our pediatric hospital and help to help pay for that. But what we've done now is we've created in this region with this program under this model, probably a hundred jobs mm. that were never there before. They did not exist. And that, but the most important thing is we've got demonstration agriculture projects going on and that includes irrigation. So we're demonstrating to them how they can turn their lives around with what they have presently and then work on teaching them new skills. Hey guys, just pausing this conversation with Pat to remind you to sign up for the Spirit and Truth Substack. The Spirit and Truth Substack puts out two uh, different newsletters every single week, all about how to help you lead as a spirit-led leader. To learn more, to sign up, go to Spirit and Truth, Spirit and Truth.substack.com. Now, let's finish up this conversation with Pat. I would imagine that the work that you do like this all over the world um, has to feel heavy at times. And, um, you know, empathy, fatigue, and, and just burnout is, is real more now than it ever before. How, how do you and your team um, stay alive for the mission that God has called you to in this field? Um. You know, you said it earlier. One, I mean, one of the things is one day at a time. Today, Jesus said, today's going to have enough of enough problems of its own. Don't worry about tomorrow until it gets here. That's a, you know, that's a big one. Um, secondly, it's I have to remind myself that today's the best day of my life. And before I get out of bed every morning, that's the first thing I say to myself. And then I ask God, why are you so good to me? So mm. I can start my mental mind set going in the right direction um but you know all that to say it's the grace of god you know if the grace of god wasn't there we would we would collapse in about three seconds literally one of the things that i saw in in this uh this new resource that you've written is a note from your publisher which i've never seen before and i (laughs) i get a lot of books um and i've seen like I've seen small notes from publishers, but your publisher basically wrote a second forward for Ooh. the book talking about how all the proceeds from the book, Born to Res- Born for Rescue, are going to go back into the ministry, and they're kind of partnering with you, and the, the impact that the ministry has had on the on the publishing um company can, can you can you kind of shed some light on that story because i think i think it's a indicative of how contagious this idea about doing something is for people today well i think so we met uh i met the publisher a couple years before the book was published and long story short we he came over to uh, east africa with us and went on a what we call a vision trip and experienced our work firsthand and He said, and this is what he told me, he said, Pat, I've been on many mission trips to many countries. He goes, what we experienced here was a change in my life like I have never experienced. Mm. And so it so moved him. He's the one who talked us into doing the book because he was with us for a week. Um, Now, prior to that, they had selected Crisis Aid as their recipient. So part of the... Uh, their net profits go to World Vision uh, and, and the other part comes to Crisis Aid. So they support us just because of the work that we're doing. But I had him come over because I wanted him to experience the work. I wanted him to see it and meet the people that his organization is helping. Um, 
And so naturally, when you're there, you're telling stories about past trips and da-da-da. So he's the one that actually convinced me to write the book. <laughs> yeah, and, and just full full credit, right? It's it's iDisciple Publishing. Yes. And, and you can you can check out their website at iDisciplePublishing.com. Um, what was it like for you to write the book? Because obviously you're a boots on the ground kind of guy. You, you want to get am. your hands dirty. You, <laughs> I can't imagine the thought of you pouring over words like this for, you know, writing a book can be a very long and tedious process. What did you learn about yourself in this journey? I learned that what you just said was exactly right on the head. You hit the nail on the head. I sat down and tried to write a chapter, and then after like a half a day, I'm like, I'm, this isn't going to work. And, <laughs> and, and when, when uh, David was on that trip to, to East Africa that week, he would say to me several times, you know, you need to write a book. You need to write a book. You need to write a book. I'm like, David, I told you. Number one, I don't want to end up with 5,000 books in my basement because I can't sell them. Number two, I didn't start this ministry to be a book sailor. I didn't, you know, to sell, have to sell books. I don't know where to publish. I don't know. I don't want to deal with marketing or any of that, the business side of it. And uh, he said, okay, fair enough. And so I went, after he got home, I went down there to visit with them. And then um, he asked me again. And I said, David, you know what I said when we were in East Africa? Da, 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 da. And he goes, well, what if I take all of those away from you? What do you mean? What if I take all those excuses away and tell you that we will market it, we will publish it, we produce it, we'll ship it, we'll inventory it, we'll sell it, and um, take care of everything for you? I said, okay, that's all great, but you know I can't sit there and write a book. I'm not going to sit. It'll take me 10 years. He goes, well, I think I got a good ghostwriter that would be more than will do a great job for you. I'm like, okay, you dirty rat. <laughs> now I got to do it. <laughs> so I said, okay. And uh, so for me, what I did was I sat down for like a day and a half with the writer, John Driver, who's written a, n a number of books. He's a pastor himself and uh, just told the stories, you know, just told the stories from my heart and what my memory and what we experienced here and there and there. And, and uh, John was the guy that kind of put it all together. And I thought he did a masterful job because if you could have seen the notes in the note board, and I mean, Tony, we were bouncing from North Korea to Indonesia to Haiti, back to North Korea. It was just everywhere. And, and uh, so he figured out how to pull it together. And it's like following the pages of a passport. I'm curious. There's a sentiment among some Christians um, that we need to help the people here in the U.S. Mm -hmm. before we go international. Um, you know, kind of, we need to clean up our ER before we go help somebody else's. I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to how you, um, you handle that objection. It's, it's not an opinion I hold personally, but I've heard it before, especially yeah. when taking, taking groups on mission trips, well, kind of what's your thought process or how, how do you respond? Cause I'm sure an organization as big as yours, that's doing as much good as yours comes under attack. That's how these things work. Right, spiritual attack is real. So, how do you wrestle with that? Um, a couple of things. One, I, that has happened, and more often than not, it's happened from people from the church. People that are in the church, almost always, almost yeah. always, people from the church. And so, my response to them is really simple. Hey, you know what? That's the job of the church. There's a church on every corner in America. Our poorest are rich compared to the people that we're serving overseas. Mm -hmm. And secondly, um, 
I respond and go, well, we do have programs in America. We have sex trafficking rescue. We have sex trafficking prevention. And we have a large feeding program here in St. Louis. So we are working here as well as uh, overseas. I, I'm curious to, I, I, and I have a bunch of notes that I don't know if we're going to get all of them or not, but uh, I'm curious about how you guys wrestled through COVID. I mean, you're, you're an organization that's very relationally driven, which I love because I think that's the way Jesus did it. I think Jesus was relational. I think um, Jesus challenges us to be relational and you seem to build relationships where you, where you go places. You do acute care, but, but long-term relationship seems to be the kind of the mode that I see from your ministry. Um, how, how did COVID impact you guys? And obviously besides the, the obvious ability to get around, um, wh- what did it do to you guys and, and what did it, opportunities presented themselves in that season? Well, um, COVID was good for us, frankly. We were, we were considered an essential business, so we were able to keep our doors open. Great. Um, and at the time, we were feeding about 400 families a month at our inner city program. But, and it's been, my wife has been running that now for like she, 20, 25 years she's been involved with it. And so we've been doing that for years. Um, we went out, we did a food distribution here in St. Louis, like everybody does where people drive up and you put it in their trunk and you see them all over the country. And it dawned on me like, you know, there's no dignity in this for the people. How do the people feel? How would I feel if I had to come and get hmm. food because I can't feed my kids, you know? And there were people that are making $150,000 living out in, in, you know, a nice part of the city. And they were in those food lines because they lost their jobs and, and they were about to lose their cars. They were about to lose their homes. And, you know, how, how would it make them feel? How would I feel for them coming in? So we came up with an idea about let's redo this and let's bring in because – Science has proven giving makes you feel good. So there's a good feeling attached to giving. Let's go on the principle that giving feels good and let's help them turn around from being recipients to givers. Givers of what we've given to them for them to share. So we did that. We tried that and we tested it and it went really, really well. Hmm. People, people would drive up on our parking lot. Tony, you could just see the body language you could just read the the depression and stuff and so we just had this bag with two cans and put a nice little note on it and said hey if you want you know share this with somebody else because there are others in need even worse than you but in you're valuable and so we just we like respecting the dignity of all people is one of is one of our core values so we approach it and how do we help people reestablish their dignity and when we handed those bags and explained what it was for you literally people sat there and start to cry they just broke down it was like something broke in them and they pulled away and they were smiling we got great reports on it and so um that one we did was like 120 150 and so our team got back to the office and everybody's wound up and excited how cool it was and it really was but I'm thinking, you know, we feed 10,000 people every month in East Africa. That is nothing. You guys are excited about s- something that is so below what we're doing overseas and what our capacity ability to do here is. They go, well, what do you want to do about it? I go, let's bump it to 4,000. Let's go from 400 a month to 4,000. Wow. Like, are you crazy? I go, yeah. They go, well, 
where's the money going to come from? I said, I don't know, God will bring it in. And three weeks later, we started our first distribution, and we were doing 4,000 families a month for 18 months. God provided. So that's what we do with COVID. It exploded our inner city. <laughs> <laughs> and it was good for us. It was financially the best year we ever had, too. Wow. Um, you have two kids, is that right? I do, yeah. Two kids. I'm curious, okay, so your wife's run a, an inner city feeding program. She's basically Mother Teresa. You're like the James Bond of the ministry world. <laughs> so, I, well, well, I just, you, you know, I was thinking to myself as you were, as you were talking about your wife and, uh, and you and, you know, you guys have obviously had your struggles. I'm not saying you're perfect, but... Um, how, how do your kids deal or, or, or wrestle with the tension of like, man, I, my mom is Mother Teresa, my dad's the James Bond of of the mission field world. W- what uh, what's been what's what's their relationship with the ministry? I would assume it has to be love hate sometimes. Yeah, no, I mean it's they you know they kind of grew up in it, grew up in it, you know. So as yeah. were young kids, it's just always been a part of our life, mission trips and stuff. So they don't see is is mother Teresa or james bond i've seen the other side of us too <laughs> <laughs> well let, let, me, let me ask you this because you, you got you obviously have some wisdom here right how, how do i've got three kids 16 12 and 10 how do i raise my kids with a posture of a being on mission uh i think the simplest way to do that is to do it yourself and let them see it hmm because kids reach an age where they don't listen. And I can tell you from my experience, it probably starts around 12 and it went to about mid-20s. Where <laughs> You didn't yeah. give me any hope. I was, hope. I was really hoping you were like 17, 18. <laughs> well, once out of high school, things start to change. Things do start to change. But, um, you know, if you're, if you're saying one thing and you're living your life differently – no matter what you say to your children, they're going to see what you're doing. Mm. And it's, what you're saying will never resonate with them. They have to see it first. That was always my belief. And so we raised our kids that way. And, you know, praise God, they've turned out really well. They're both married, got families, got good careers. They love God. Um, couldn't ask for more. So That's awesome. Yeah. And, and um, also Crisis Age started, Tony. Um because up until 2000, 2002, I was taking two weeks a year and going on a, taking my vacation time and you know going on a mission trip. So crisis aid didn't start until they were out of the house. Oh, uh, okay. So that I, yeah, I see what you're saying. So it kind of shifted in in different seasons of their life, and yeah, as yeah. that worked out together. Um. So I, I know one of the things about my community is that they love to pray. And as they pray about this book, um, kind of what what should they be praying for? Like when you wrote it, like what's the end goal um, that we could walk alongside you in prayer? Oh, thank you. That's so, that means so much to me. I want to see this book be like, a, I, want to, I want this book to like, get into a million people's hands, whether we give it to them or they buy it or sell it. However, I would love to see a million people get it in their hands because I know the power of a book. And there's a book called God Smuggler. Have you ever heard of that one? Mm-mm. The story of Brother Andrew, who is the founder of a ministry called Open Doors. 
they were the first ones that went back, and this goes back into the 60s, early 60s, where he was actually going behind the Iron Curtain and, and getting involved with underground churches. And he came out with and informed the world about Christian persecution that none of us knew about. Wow. Anyway, he wrote a book. It was a very funny story because he didn't want to write the book either. So he <laughs> did it. He, did. he told some stories and to some writers, and they did a masterful job. Anyway... Uh, the night I got saved, the church had a bookstore, and on the end cap there was a book, and it said God Smuggler, and I was very intrigued by this book title. So I took it home and started reading. I didn't own a Bible. I started reading it, and I couldn't put it down, and I finished it the next night, and I prayed a simple prayer. I said, God, if you ever want to use me to help those being persecuted, I'd just make myself available. And that was it. That's all I prayed. But that wow. came from a book. And I can tell, tell you today, if... I had not read that book. I'd still be a believer, but Christ is would not exist. That book changed something in me. And mm. I've heard the leadership and, and open doors over the years say thousands and thousands of people have made that claim and it's, and it's changed their lives. It put people in the mission field or just, you know, changed their lives in a positive, demonstrable, measurable way here in America or wherever they live. Not just philosophically, it changed my life. So my prayer is, when people read this book, that they see, A, I am nothing, I'm not any special, I'm not a superhero, I don't have any you know, hidden talents. I'm a guy who totally screwed his life up and threw it down the drain. And God picked it up, and he used me to you know, do these great, you know, create crisis aid. But what I want people to get is, A, God can use them, but more importantly, God wants to use them. So we spend mm. so much time, God, what's your will for my life? What's your will for my life? What if we spent half of that time convincing ourselves that God wants to use me already where I'm at? And it goes back to that, the simplicity of whatever you do for the least of me. These. So I would love for this to... to for Christians to read this book and get out of the church pew and start doing something and becoming the body of Christ that Jesus wants us to become. That's my main goal in this book. I love it. I love it. Um, I, I close every podcast by saying, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move. And so yeah. this feels uh, uh, perfect. You, you, at, steal that anytime you want. Um, okay. <laughs> I have one more question for you, but before I ask it, I know that my listeners are going to want to connect with you. Where's the best thing, uh, best place to learn all things about what you're doing and what uh, what God is doing in and through your ministry? It would be our website, crisisaid.org. Crisisaid.org. Well, of course, we'll link to that in the show notes um, and, and get connected there. And uh, you guys have a pretty robust social media presence too on Instagram, especially. Um, okay. So last question I always love to ask people. It's an advice question. And I'm going to ask you to go back and give yourself one piece of advice, except I get to name the season of life that you're in when you give that advice. And oh. I wanted to take you, <laughs> it's, there's a twist. There's always a twist. You, um, you've asked some original questions. I am really enjoying this. Thank you. Uh, Okay, Pat, so here it is. I want to take you back to the day before you go to check out the cult. Um, 
with your then ex-wife. If you could pull up a chair in front of that young man, sit knee to knee with him, hold his hand, look him in the eye, what's the one thing that you're going to tell him? That's a good I mean, several things pop into my head. Um, I would say this. Do you know God has a really special plan for your life? Would you like to learn a little bit more about that? Yeah. Because at that moment, you could have said to me, well, Jesus went, you know, pray the sinner's prayer. Jesus wants to save you, blah, 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 blah. You'd have never reached me. My mind was already turned off to the whole Christian message. But as I think back on it, if someone was sitting across from me and the one thing they could say to get my attention, you know, our our, our salvation is a hard thing, but it starts up here. It has to start up here. And that would be the one thing that would get my attention. Because I would probably go, what do you mean? Yeah. You know? Oh, that's good. That's good. I'm going to throw in a bonus question because I'm really curious. Um, I know we never retire from ministry, um, but obviously how we do ministry changes and seasons change. What's the next season of ministry look like for you? Well, for crisis aid, right now I want it to go on for another 100 years, okay? Yeah. Because of things that we're doing um, – Pediatric hospitals, medical work, feeding work, they're all very, very important life-saving programs that need to continue on in, indefinitely until Jesus comes back. So I've been spending the last couple of years spending a lot of my thinking and praying time about what's in the next generation hmm. and starting to try to set things up. So like, for instance, all of our work in uh, East Africa, which is where eh, probably... 75% of our budget is. We've got 18 separate projects running over there. I have a, a husband and wife team in their late 50s, mid to early late 50s, um, and they run everything. And they have been a godsend. Wow. They've been with 15 years. They know my heart. I know their heart. I feel very good that that works in good hands there. So now I've been spending time trying to get um, – you know, getting the office, the administration side of this, not just to work in St. Louis, but we also run an office, you know, because a nonprofit is such a bad term. As a businessman, I come out of the business world. Right. It's like a stupid term. I mean, if it's a nonprofit, you're not going to work. You're not going to be around. So we have to manage cash. What's the cash flow management thing? And so it's just getting thing, getting this office set up to continue because all the development work fundraising comes out of this office. And so... For instance, we have the highest accreditations you can get from Charity Navigator. They ranked us in the top one half of 1% of nonprofits in America. I mean, you you can't get higher than that. But to get those things, it takes a lot of internal work that you have to do, manage your funds properly, be 100% transparent. And so there's a lot of work that goes into doing this work, not just handing it. You know, I always always said, no, people wouldn't believe how much work goes into handing out a bag of food if we do it with excellence. And so getting this office set up, but, and, and we're probably 75% there. So it's in a really good place. Like if I die yeah. now, 
tomorrow, this thing would continue. I already know it would, the right people are in the right place. So for me, going forward would be, okay, so I'm really passionate about crisis aid and what we do and trafficking, rescue and all that stuff. But what I'm is equally passionate about, and sometimes I think maybe I'm even more passionate, is I want to see the church come out of the church pew and become the body of Christ. I want to see believers go from boredom to excitement in life because they're walking in what God created them to walk. Mm. And when you're doing that, there's an excitement already built in, into our DNA because we're following what God wired us to do. And so it's not like I don't have to create the energy to do it. I'm wired to do this. I was created to do this. And so... I just have the natural energy and excitement to do it. And how else are we going to affect the world unless Christians get out of the pew and demonstrate the love of God? They think that we all have to go out and be able to preach the gospel. Well, you know what? I don't preach the gospel. I'm not a, I can't get up there and give a great sermon and, you know, get millions to get saved. But what I can do is go out there and demonstrate the God, the love of God. And that's what I have found, Tony, for where God sends us. That's the most important thing. Because once we demonstrate it, and they see it and grasp it and feel it, their hearts are open. Yeah. Yeah, and I've seen that happen with warlords. I've seen it happen with Taliban. I've seen it happen with girls trapped in a red light district. I've seen it happen with pimps. People are dying to know that God loves them, but they're never going to hear it. they got to see it. Hmm. So good. Pat, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Oh, and My um, honor. Thank you. I just appreciate your heart for the gospel and how it plays out to build the kingdom of God. So thank you for the work that you're doing. And I just want to encourage everyone to go pick up a copy of Born for Rescue and follow Crisis Aid on all their uh, all their social media channels. And maybe consider making a financial gift to help uh, consider to spur on what God is doing in and through this ministry. So thank you so much, Pat. What a blessing it is to hear from Pat and to get to know more and more of his story. I just think he's got such a great great heart when it comes to serving people. What a great perspective. I really appreciate his vulnerability about his relationship with his wife and how that has grown over the years. Guys, I'm thankful for you, for this connection, for the opportunity to give me to do what I love by putting out podcasts every single week. Hey, the best compliment you can give me, share this episode with a friend, share it on social media, tag me. If there's anything I can do for you, please don't hesitate to let me know. Remember guys, If you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.